Lucky listeners out there in earbud land, and welcome to another exciting episode of Playing Records with John. My guest this time is musician and podcaster Jordan Cooper. Now, Jordan releases music under the name Troubles Afoot, sometimes with a live rhythm section that's Dave Fox on bass and Christopher Roberts on drums, and sometimes as a one-man band. You can find an assortment of tracks at soundcloud.com slash troubles afoot, and you can check out their amazing album Looking for Parking at troublesafoot.bandcamp.com. In fact, you can hear, or kind of hear, one of the songs from that album under my talking right now. And that album is a pay-as-you-wish type of thing over there at Bandcamp, so why not just wish to pay a lot? I also recommend his exhaustive and ambitious They Might Be Giants podcast called Don't Let Start, a podcast about They Might Be Giants, which is co-hosted by Dave Fox, a.k.a. the aforementioned bass player for Troubles Afoot, and a talented visual artist. I'll throw that in. Uh, follow them on Twitter at Don't Let's Pod, and look for Don't Let's Start, a podcast about They Might Be Giants on your favorite podcatcher and look for don't let start a podcast about tmbg on youtube where they have an ever-growing library of clips from the show but that's enough setup let's get to part one of my conversation with the one and only jordan cooper hit song dreams of planes and mushrooms recording artist jordan cooper recording studio mario Pate incorporated and now, here it is. I think I was nine years old, and that's uh, Mario Paint. Yeah, that's the first time I ever made music. I remember spending like a really long time making it. Um, so you asked me for like the earliest thing, so I'm pretty sure, you know, that's the earliest thing. I love the intro on that where you say recording artist, Jordan Cooper. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so that's kind of like a cute moment. But the thing is, it wasn't that the melody was in my head. It was that I had haphazardly thrown a bunch of notes on the screen and pressed play. And I heard the hints of something kind of like struggling to get out. And then I just spent hours and hours trying to clear the path for this like melody that was kind of under the surface there. And then it just kind of built from there. So I, I wasn't like a little genius kid with this amazing melody that was in my head. It was more just throwing a bunch of puzzle pieces on the floor and then being like, oh, I'm starting to see a little bit of an image here. Let me make that clearer. For most of my uh, childhood, I, I thought I was going to be a cartoonist like I, I drew obsessively and I like doodled in school and I was kind of known in my classes as like the, the kid who drew cartoons which was pretty fun but then at uh, one time I forget why but I my sister had hid her keyboard her Casio keyboard under my bed when I was like 14 or 15 and I looked under my bed and there was a Casio keyboard and I just like put it on my desk and plugged it in for fun and started playing it. And what's weird is that I noticed right away that I was like making melodies, you know, just like with like one finger. Mm -hmm. Eventually that turned into like me getting a, uh, 
Well, I was like, well, I want to start recording. So I had a tiny, tiny microphone that I also think like my sister gave me or something. It was just like a little vocal microphone that was about the size of, God, it was like smaller. It was really small. It was like a really tiny microphone. I kind of just put it on my keyboard speaker, like just face down on the speaker. And that's how I made music for like a few years, which is really, you know, crazy to think about. Um, sometimes I would hover it like about an inch above the speaker and I would put a book on top of like the cable so that it held straight and it would just kind of hover there. The first stuff I did was like recreating little parts of songs I liked. Like I have like one of my first things from 1999 is like this XTC song that I tried to recreate with my Casio, you know. Uh, do you know XTC? I love XTC. They, they were one of my big three in, in back when I was a high school student and I liked to do things like name my big three. Yeah, sure. It was uh, Elvis Costello, XTC, and They Might Be Giants. And then yeah. I think then that expanded very quickly to like Pixies, Frank Black. Yeah. So one of the first things I made then that I see in my files, and I could send this to you if you want a reference, but um, is I tried to do the Easter theater chorus. Oh, wow. That's just gorgeous. Stage left Easter and she's dressed in yellows. Now the sun has died, the father can be born. If we'd all breathe in Yeah, so it was me being like, oh, here's like the flute sound on the Casio and here's like the notes and then here's like the string sound, you know, so that was actually like one of the very, very first things I, I did. Did you have any musicians in your family or in your house or instruments laying around that, that encouraged no. you? No, nothing, nothing at all? Nothing at all, no. My mom just mentioned once that she played guitar when she was like a teenager or something, <laughs> but there was no, there was nothing at all. My, my parents, as far as I knew, never really talked about music or listened to music. <laughs> so um, well, I guess my mom did. My mom's into like 60s stuff. My dad, as far as I could tell, never uh, has said one thing about music. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, it was kind of surprising because like I said, uh, like I've said on, on my podcast, like I, I didn't even like a lot of bands when I was younger. It was really, they might be giants and then kind of, a yeah, like then eventually XTC and other bands in that, uh, family. But yeah, I don't know where it came from all of a sudden, just the obsessively making music for here. It's like, it's, it is weird. I'm crying as I'm So I think the first song I ever wrote was called Song Song, and I, I remember writing the lyrics in high school, like while I was in class, and it's a song about being a song, and I, it, it kind of brings me to a larger point, which is I think when you're first starting out uh, songwriting, I noticed, at least for me, is that a lot of my lyrics were very like ironic about like, hey, can you believe I'm writing a song? How crazy is that? And it, it took a long time to get past that, or maybe not too long, but it took a few songs to be like, 
I'm just going to express something in the lyrics and not comment on how I'm making a song because it's so absurd. Don't you think that that is a self-defense mechanism kicking in where it's like, yeah. you, you don't want to be seen as being cheesy or you don't want to be seen as being overly earnest or something. Mm -hmm. You're sort of denying part of the pleasure of a good song is is sinking into a mood and sinking yeah. into an emotion. And I think that that sort of cleverness, it's why I'm very particular. To this day, I still sometimes wonder if I throw in that line, once like one turn too many on a, on a bit of wordplay that turns it into a joke. Sure. And, oh, I yeah. and I think like, is somebody going to now go, hmm, no, John's at it again. Mm -hmm. Or also the 10th time you hear that, the 20th time, um, if I'm lucky enough to have someone listen to one that that many times, like, are they going to still think it's funny or is it going to be tiresome? And I, I I struggle with that all the time. And some songs I just say, okay, this song is more novelty than this one because this song is is more jokey and I'm letting it be. But I, I, I often wonder, is, is that something that an audience member wishes you weren't doing? Yeah, I have. Well, we can talk for about this one topic for the entire episode because <laughs> I have I have a lot of thoughts on this because, well, there's several things. One when it does go past that line, I remember going to a lot of open mics and there was a lot of um, lyrics that I was hearing that would be kind of eye rolling. Like it would be a joke and it would totally be, it would feel like it went over the line. I'd be like, oh, you ruined the song, right? I'd be like, I was in the zone of, of your song and then you have this dumb joke and now I'm totally out of it. But uh, how's who's to say if I'm not guilty of, of doing that too? Because I have songs that are serious songs and then I throw in some humor and I, I do really, I write and I rewrite those lines usually to make, to make them not too funny, but funny, kind of funny. It's such a, uh, it's like so hard to... Um, to like calculate the right amount because it's sort of, I have the same thing that you said, which is I do have songs that are overtly comedy songs. And I, you know, I might play one at a show and be like, here's the funny song. Um, but the other, it's not that the other songs don't have humor though, you know? It's just that they're I don't see them as funny. I don't know, it's it's weird. I almost get I get kind of I I take offense when people say my stuff is too funny because then I I feel like they're dismissing the not funny aspect of the songs. Like I'm like, well, that's a serious song about something really sad that happened to me. And just because I threw in a, a line that has some wit in it, that's I feel like I don't want people to discount the <laughs> the other parts of it. Yeah, no, I've had that happen where somebody says, uh, your songs are hilarious. And I'm just like, really? They're hilarious? You find my despair hilarious? <laughs> but it's it's weird, though, because we're the ones who are putting humor in it. <laughs> but then we get offended. I have this, like, the, the dueling sides where the part of me that wants to be understood and then the part of me that, that refuses to try to be understandable. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. And what's funny is I had the reverse recently when a friend of mine who has used my music in, in his films, mm -hmm. and, um, and I know he's a fan, you know, and one night I was over at his house and he was recording me playing a song and he said, you know, as a compliment, you know, I really like your stuff because it's so earnest. Mm. And it sat funny with me. Am I earnest? I don't want to be earnest, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. And then I realized later, I was like, I guess I don't like that any more than I like someone saying it's hilarious. <laughs> I lost it. Just lost it.
I made the demo years after writing it, so even though it's my earliest song, it's not re recorded until years later. It was more about self-reflection uh, after time passing, because it's saying the lines to the song are like, I'm crying as I'm writing this, not as I'm singing it. It's funny to me now. So it's saying I'm singing about this sad thing, but now I'm just on a stage. And this was years before I ever played live. So this is like a total fantasy song. But I was like, now I'm on a stage smiling and singing this pop song that's about this thing that's destroying me emotionally at the moment. So it was kind of playing with the the concept of time and like how how like time changes your feelings about stuff. That's probably my first real personal song and then Erin the girl which I guess we should would segue to is sort of the first time I made like a full-on song demo which is I think what you're kind of interested in Erin the girl needs something better Erin the girl needs something better Erin the girl needs nothing to be wrong Erin the girl needs something better Erin the girl needs something better Erin the girl needs a better birthday song the goal for that song was to use every chord <laughs> so when write, when writing the song and i don't mean major and minor but the goal was to use every letter on the keyboard so i i needed a, some type of a chord some type of a sharp some type of b etc right so as far as I can uh, see from my, the chord chart, it, it it seems to I achieve that. And you can, what I was really proud of is that it doesn't, um, you know, the 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 key of the song changes several times, but it all flows into each other pretty well. And I some of it is obvious. I think maybe maybe like go, coming out of the bridge, it's a little obvious, um, but. I it's weird because it's like my it's almost my first song and I tried to make it as challenging and anti-simplistic as possible which is very odd. I don't remember why I wanted to do that. I should maybe give more context for the for the song. So my friend Matt, his girlfriend was a girl named Erin who we were all friends with before. Uh, but then they became a couple for a while and then her birthday was coming up. And I don't know if, you, I mean, you probably relate to this, like just, you know, having an excuse to make a song is like very, very motivational, you know, like having a, having a little project. And I think I was feeling confident and I must have been confident enough that I'm like, I'm going to make a, a whole song for her, like drums, you know, like a whole demo with everything in it. And I'm going to make her a little CD. And I'm going to like print it out. I'm going to, I printed out a cover for it. I made like all this, I worked so hard on it. It's kind of insane. But so she grabbed the CD and they all listened to it in, you know, in, in my friend's room. And I was, I had to leave the room because I was like, I was literally shaking with nervousness at the prospect of my friends hearing this. It was so terrifying to me for, to be, to have to sit in the room with them while they hear me sing a song. Like it was so humiliating that I waited outside in the living room. Aaron can't stand to sit over here. Aaron wants no one to interfere. She loves the sky and hates the ground, but it's just too empty without both around. Aaron wants to understand why nobody can comprehend the simple things that she can say to them. 
them when they are blinded by the refusal to accept the fact that she goes through every day as Aaron. What establishes the whole like thrust of, of what the lyrics are about with her is the line, Erin wants to understand why nobody can comprehend the simple things that she can say to them when they are blinded by their refusal to accept the fact that she goes through every day as Erin. <laughs> I was really proud of that because I thought it was really funny and really accurate. Like she was easily annoyed. She always pointed out like the flaws that would happen and sometimes it would be funny and sometimes it would be kind of like a bummer. It's just kind of this attitude of, of wanting everything to be perfect because everything is so annoying and gross. Like I was kind of teasing her a little with the lyrics. It wasn't intended to, to be mean, but I thought she would see through it right away if I made a song about how awesome and great she is. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember after she heard it and maybe, maybe after a few weeks and she had listened to it on her own time and she told me like, wow, you, you captured, like this song really speaks to me, you know? because I don't think people want to just be told how great they are. I think they want to feel like they're seen, you know, like for who they really are. Aaron goes to sleep at night But the sheets under her don't feel light She hugs her pillow way too tight She peers into a made a song about Matt because I was like, well, if I made a song about my friend Matt's girlfriend, I should also make a song for Matt. So I made a song called Get a Matt, which was also similarly kind of not too positive because <laughs> it was kind of about something Matt had told me once about how he felt in relationships, which is that because my, my friend Matt, he's a comedian. He's really funny. But you know, sometimes being a funny guy means that people don't take you seriously. So the song is called Get a Matt, and it's supposed to be kind of like an, an advertisement for Matt. Everyone's got a Matt. Everyone has a punching bag. Everyone's got some Matt. Their faces live inside their hands. And that was kind of inspired almost by how our friendship was, how I would treat him. I would kind of punch him a lot because <laughs> he's like a lot, he's a lot bigger than me. So I was always kind of like punching him and making fun of him and because he's a funny guy. And I think some of my guilt came out in the lyrics, you know? So for me, like songs like this, they're not really superficial. They're, I'm trying to, I'm always trying to go kind of deep with them. You know, I'm trying to like, trying to like do something kind of therapeutic. So, so his song also came out very, and, and again, he loved it. Like he loved the song and he would sing it on stage with me with, when we would play it, you know? Mm -hmm. The whole bridge section is him just screaming like at the top of his lungs, like this terror, like this terrified scream. And the whole idea was that it's just like his inner rage at not being taken seriously, kind of, ex you know, exploding out of him. And he understood it, like he totally was on board for that. And he, he would scream like crazy on stage.
everyone loves a man. Nobody knows what to do with him. Thanks. That's kind of my favorite thing in music is when you're touching on these kind of not quite positive, not quite negative, but just these kind of truthful, sad, funny things about, you know, about what people and communication and life and everything like that. So not to go too deep there. But, but I mean, that's what you're trying to do. It's okay to go deep with it when you're talking about writing a song that you, you're hoping to show some some uh, observational ability uh, that allows someone to see themselves in the song in a way that's not predictable. It, it, this song sort of seems like it prefigures the songs you were doing when you had your um, Write a Song About Me site, where you, you were actually sort of writing songs to order. Sarah Epler. The thing about those songs is it's based, they were based entirely on what people sent me and you know, and they would fill, so they would fill out a form on this website I had. Well, I still have it, <laughs> but it's kind of dead, but it's called writeasongaboutme.com and you fill out a form and you, you say information about you. And sometimes people would tell me like tragic things or weird things, you know? Chicken eating diamonds, Andrew's got a shirt with chicken eating diamonds. You know, like one one of the first ones I ever did, the guy told me about like health problems that he and his his wife have had. So I, I had to put it, you know, he told me that. So I, I, the song was informed by this. There's a sort of a sense of melancholy to the song and saying, we'll make it through this. You know, we're going to, it's like, it's a positive song, but it's, it's, it is, it does touch on the, the sad thing they told me. No matter what happens, we'll be great. We'll follow each other all over. weird to do that because it's a really it's tricky you don't want to go too far like i've had to change lyrics where i'm like oh that seems a little uh that seems a little too mean <laughs> but um but at the same time if you write something that seems too nice it feels it can feel really fake or like you're sucking up to someone and i, I never want to do that well no i i was intrigued by that because i had considered doing something similar i'm sure i'm sure a lot of songwriters <laughs> think of doing it. well i mean because you think i could write a song about anything yeah what do you love about I really love an assignment, and I always, I always yeah. rise to the level of an assignment when, some, when I know someone's waiting for something from, from me, and that they're expecting a certain characteristic. I, yeah. I get this little fire inside me that says, okay, I don't want to disappoint them. It's huge. But I also want to sort of smuggle in some uniquely me part yeah. that is not what they're expecting. I want to 
Did I send you lemonade? Yeah, you did. That's a very, yeah, that was a very early one that I kept going on the fence about sending you. But I, I can only, we can mention it just in this one uh, context, which is that that's the first song I made where my friend, actually the same friend, uh, my friend Matt, who whose girlfriend was Aaron. One time he told me, oh, I listened to Lemonade while I was on a hike. And I like was, you know, up on the top of this hill and it was really beautiful out. And the song, it went so well with the moment. And I really loved the song. And that like stuck with me. Obviously, it's with me this was like 20 years ago and um that like stuck with me like so intensely because i thought that was like the biggest compliment i've ever had you know like that a friend could hear me singing in their ear and kind of divorce themselves from the idea that it's someone that they know but actually just enjoy the song on a musical level is like kind of amazing that is a great compliment to think that somebody Really what we're saying is to think that somebody just slots it in with music they love. Yes, because I'll play songs for like my girlfriend that I'm working on and I, I really feel like I do detect a difference between the supportive words of just, oh, you know, that was good, good job, you know, you made a demo, and the genuine, oh my God, I really like this reaction, which I can totally see. Like I've seen both reactions very clearly and it's always mm -hmm. like, it's always like a special moment when it breaks through to like, oh, I actually want to listen to that song by myself, not just from you playing it for me. <laughs> it's interesting to get that compliment of just somebody that you trust listening to it. But the, the funny thing is about reaching any kind of critical mass is you, you realize what you want is all these strangers who you'll never meet to yeah. love it. And it's so hard to figure out how to bridge the gap from the bedroom to, to that. I know. I, that's why I still haven't figured it out for years. I, I really don't know. <laughs> Making music, at least in what well, you could probably tell, is like a very solitary activity for me. <laughs> it was like very alone in my in my bedroom for most of it. Um, and obviously, I did send you stuff that was with made with other people, but for so much of it, like for like I'd say like eighty percent of it, maybe it was just me alone. It's almost like a diary, you know. As much as I would like to think that people enjoy my music, treasure the sort of weirdo from another planet, sure, uh, trans transmitting messages straight from his brain. Anytime I've made something that's a little more polished or a little more user friendly, I get such a reaction, and people are like, "Oh my god, this sounds really good!" And I'm like, "Oh <laughs> yeah. darn it." Yeah, yeah. Whatever part of me was hoping, like, we like John when he's depressive and weird and, and like a hermit mm -hmm. uh, playing with a keyboard. Mm -hmm. Like, that person, even the person that likes that, would much rather it be big and shiny and, and sound good on the radio. And I don't blame them at all. But I do think that um, that approach, that sort of bedroom music approach is something that, I mean, I, I just want to say just from going through your your music you've sent me and from what yeah. you just said, I'm, I'm putting together a picture that's similar to what I went through, which is... I was interested in music and I was kind of doing this little, not even really serious approach to just, I had a song that I would hum in my head and words I would sing. And sometimes I would write them down and sometimes I would grab a tape recorder. And mm -hmm. I did things like playing the pre-programmed beats on a Casio keyboard and like put that in front of a tape recorder. And then I would lean in and sing over that and change the chords as I went. Yeah. And then of course, someone I knew had a four track. So that was just like, my brain exploded. Yeah. 
I think that I have sort of a control freak tendency to want to see these ideas through to such a such a complete sense of my idea of them. Yes. <laughs> that it draws me away from other people. There's something that happens in a room when you've got other musicians on a song and it can often yeah. be grand and like, oh my God, this song now sounds huge and people might shake their fist and sing along to this song, whereas before it was just this little thing. But there is also something about... Um, and I think you and I had an uh, off-mic exchange about this a few days back, texting about a demo being sort of the real version of a song versus versus the final polished version being the real version. And sometimes if you get a good recording, what you were saying about the song is the thing, there is something about if it's really that good and you just hear that version, you almost, as a songwriter, think, why am I adding to this? Why am I building on yeah. this? Like, as much as I love vocal harmony, sometimes I think if I just have a good, strong central performance in a song, why do I need to then create the little chorus? That That's very specific. Vo vocal harmony is a really good example of what we're, of what, uh, we're talking about. Also, I just want to say, I think me and you are, have a very similar story, which is very strange for me, because you always like to feel like you're like the special person. <laughs> but, but it's sort of like when I went from high school to art school to art college, so I, I went from being literally the only artistic person out of thousands of people <laughs> in a school and I mean, that might sound like an exaggeration, but that's certainly what it felt like, you know? So I went from that to School of Visual Arts, which is an art school, and suddenly I felt, I did kind of have this kind of a depression of like, oh my God, everyone is obsessively making art all the time. And I, like, I would visit, the, I have this very vivid memory. This is like 2000, 2001. I, would, I visited the dorm once, because I was friends with someone who lived at the dorm. I didn't live there, but... And it's like this guy's like, oh, check out this song I've been working on. And he like plays a song on his computer. And I was just like seething with like jealousy and like feeling like, oh my God, other people do this? Like other people sit around and just make songs in their computer. And by the way, his song sounded like a million bucks to me. I have this weird complex where just, I think anyone else but me sounds a billion times better than me. <laughs> so like, like someone could play me the crappiest demo they've ever made. And in my perspective, I'll be like, why can't I sound like that? Why can't I do that? It's really weird. I don't know what it is. I, I hate to make a Simpsons reference at this late date <laughs> in our in our uh, world's history, but um, there's a thing I always think about in relation to this that is a Simpsons reference, and it's almost like a humbling exercise to me. It's in one of the episodes where they go to Itchy and Scratchy Land, and they're mm -hmm. watching the parade of robots. Yeah. And and one of the robots, his head pops open and you see the sparks and you see like the innards of the robot's brain. Yeah. And then Marge yeah. says something to Homer like, See all that stuff in there, Homer? That's why your robot never worked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's one of my favorite lines. <laughs> and I always think that about my music when I've been like living, like just living in one of my mixes and I'm loving it. And I'm like, this is the poppiest song anyone's yeah. ever made. And it's going to take the world by storm. If only one world, perhaps other worlds will will respond. And then I hear something that I really like, or somebody plays something that sounds really big and produced or whatever to me. And I go, oh shit, I forgot that music could sound that big <laughs> and that good. Yeah. And I go, I go back to what I was previously happy with. And I suddenly go, oh, well now this has got a big question mark over it. And I try to actually fight that feeling. Like lately, if I finish a mix, I tend to put it up on my SoundCloud or something just to put like a stopping point in it. Yeah. For me, the pile of songs that are pretty good, pretty good recordings, maybe demos that got a lot of attention, the fact that those have piled up for so long 
it kind of like builds up this weird pressure. And I, I think I see you dealing with a very similar thing when you say that you've written hundreds of songs and you're sort of <laughs> you're sort of just now starting to put them out officially. Every time you talk, I think of a thousand things to respond to because there's there's a lot there. So you said, does this song need a harmony? Will that make it better? Will that make it the same? Will that make it worse if it's too much? There's actually I can think of versions of uh, I can think of other songs where the harmony is kind of. Uh, annoy me <laughs> like in like different versions of songs where I'm like oh they added a harmony that's like really distracting there is a suggestion of a of a first person narrator in a song sometimes and sometimes any, anything that pushes you away from that idea of hearing a person telling a story in their mm -hmm. singing, it sometimes it can make it feel more remote, or in that case, maybe something feels kind of big and it distracts you from the yes. central melody or something. And it can almost be a crutch. Like I know there are times when I layered on harmonies just because I didn't know what the fuck to do with the <laughs> yeah, song. Sure. <laughs> But, but I think that I've had a friend who is not like a music guy, but he's the first guy I send a mix to. Oh my God, I have that same friend. That's so funny. But he, a long time ago, said something to me about, like this was when I first was playing around with a four track and I was layering on my vocals. He said, I kind of want to hear John tell me this story, not John, and then a bunch of other Johns jump in and tell the story. Yeah. And I do love that artificial sound. Like I, I can listen to some Jeff Lynne music where he's harmonizing with himself, you know, 50 times all day. I love that sound too. See, I love when Frank Black does, when Frank Black started doing that again yeah so you know when he put out like seven fingers yes so that was the first time in in like a decade that frank black wasn't doing live to two track anymore let's give a little context just in case someone listening doesn't know but there was a point where frank black went in his solo career from making these really slickly produced albums that kind of took what the pixies were doing and pushed it into an even more slick direction and then he went back to a more stripped down idea of let's get a band and get a live to two track no overdubs which meant if you heard harmonies you were hearing other guys in the band uh doing it I love some of those Catholics albums, but what I'm saying is like, I think that that artificial, that certain texture, that certain grain that you get with certain songwriters harmonizing with themselves, he's one of those guys who I do love to hear him do it. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Seven Fingers came out and it sounded a little bit more experimental and produced. Yeah. And, and I was just like, okay, I love the ethic of saying we're going to make this music r really live. But I also think it's, I, I like him in the studio messing around. Yeah, exactly. Like I, so when I played Seven Fingers, I was just absolutely thrilled to hear multiple Frank Black singing on, and, you know, counter melodies and all this stuff with him. There's a song on my album called Cellar, and the whole concept of the song is that it's a guy alone in a cellar and he has a guitar and he's playing a song to himself, right? Like that's like the kind of cinematic uh, concept behind it. If you hear the song, I put the sound of like a faucet dripping that I recorded in my bathroom, you know? I put the sound of street noise from outside. I kind of muffled it. I put the microphone in a hamper and I sang the song that way. Now to do overdubs to make like a harmony in that song, which would be fairly easy because it's like very melodic. To me, that would be like, well, but he's alone, right? And it's funny because it, I, I don't know if people like see songs that way or music that way. <laughs> um, 
but like the whole point of that song is that he's he's a guy who's alone and he's singing so to put harmonies would ruin it and it, it like wouldn't make sense which is a weird thing to even say about a song production because nothing really makes sense like music doesn't really make any sense Made food in my cellar. under everything I am under skies and trees I am under feet and people I am underground and gravel I am under air and planes I am under pipes and trains I am under fur and feathers I am under the weather I am under the weather What's the next selection that we've got? Well, Boy My Age was probably the next one I, I sent you, uh, <laughs> which was, I, I think I called it my first, like, actually successful demo, uh, meaning that, like, it didn't have horrible timing problems. <laughs> and, like, the instruments played off each other in a way that, like, seems organized. Nine times out of ten, I hate my best friend. He acts like he's been on Mars. Four times out of five, I pinch him and he cries. I flinch and that's when I stop. A boy my age should not be friends with a boy my age. Junior high school Brussels sage will be a better place. I mean, really what I hear is the sort of giddiness probably you were feeling that, oh, this sounds like a real catchy song. Like, it sounds actually... like a real song. Yeah, exactly. the impetus to start writing that song um i wish i had more memories of writing it so this is a song like just very blatantly about uh, the friendship i had as a child like my childhood best friend you know i mean it's it might be clear through the lyrics but I, basically I, I was in like a horrible friendship for most of elementary school you know like pretty like important years for developing social skills um so from first grade to fifth grade or for maybe fourth grade, I had this one friend that it was, he, I basically, he was basically like a monster, you know, he was just like a little asshole who would just constantly like kind of bully me and fight with me. And I even have old cassettes of us fighting. I locked myself in the bathroom because I was literally like kind of scared of him, you know, it's him with my cassette recorder making fun of me outside the bathroom. I and mean, it's like pretty traumatic stuff, <laughs> which brings us to the, this funny song <laughs> called a boy, my age. It's, 100% autobiographical about this my this friendship and it's from the point of view of me in like 5th or 6th grade but the the fictional element is sort of the point of view of the song which was not something that I ever thought the verses are about 
how I hate the, this friend. And those are 100% true. So there's a part when it says, he called my phone. My mom said, I'm not home. You know, I remember my mom saying, like, she hates lying to this to him saying I'm not home because I don't want to talk to him you know like I'd always just be like just say I'm not here and she's like where should I say you are and it was very stressful you know the stuff in the the bridge about if he writes me an apology note I just might have to stab him in the throat we would have these giant fights I'd say I'm not your you're not my best friend anymore and then I'd get this note in the mail from him that was just like you're my best friend I our friendship is so important to me blah 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 so that's like right out of life. But what's not right out of life is the chorus, which is basically saying a boy my age should not be friends with a boy my age, junior high school, Russell Sage, which is my the name of my junior high, which I still live a block away from, by the way, <laughs> which is kind of like weird. But junior high school, Russell Sage will be a better place. So the, the, the concept of the song is that I'm a little kid and I'm saying when I'm older, I'll meet someone who's like a better friend to me. Like I'll, I'll meet a bunch of people in, in junior high who will be like awesome and will be better. You know, I should be with people who are older basically. Cause I'm so mature. That's that's sort of like, it's sort of like the egotistical joke about I'm so smart and mature. I need to be friends with older kids. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like the cosmic joke of being 12 and thinking next year, things are going to turn around for me. Yes. You know, they're not going to have, they're not going to have little Johnny Walker to kick around anymore. And, <laughs> And then you, you know, you don't even know how bad it's about to get uh, as far as hormones and everything. That's so funny that you caught that. Cause I see, I always thought that was an esoteric thing that no one besides me would get because junior high was, was horrible. And I don't know if it was horrible for everyone, but it was horrible for me. And I didn't have any friends for a while and it was just very lonely and stressful. So part of the joke of the song is exactly like you said, which is that it, it's going to get maybe not worse because that one friendship was very bad, but it's not going to get much better. So that is, yeah, that's amazing that you caught that. Cause I didn't know, if, I don't know if anyone ever gets that at all. <laughs> the Russell Sage was such a, such a specific thing that I thought, okay, that's gotta be, that's gotta be true. That's gotta be the right name. That's a whole topic to talk about. Cause you know, like Ben Folds five, he would put these things in their lyrics that are just names of his friends and streets that, you know, I mean, I'm sure other people do this too, but I I'm saying from my point of view, this is really the first time I, I heard lyrics about people and places that I didn't know about. And that was kind of like a amazing thing to me because it, it, what you realize is that it, it doesn't matter that you don't know the place or the person like it, cause you just think of your own place or person that, and you could kind of substitute it subconsciously, you know, when you're hearing the song, I do this a lot in my songs. And I, I did this in this one, putting the name Russell Sage, fully aware that most people around the world hearing the song would not know what that even is like they could, I mean, they would assume it's a junior high, but they might, the lyric might breeze by them fast enough that it'd be like, wait, what? I, I I love that because for, so my goal for, for songwriting. And like I said about doing those old open mics, my goal was to just be like, no one else could have written this song. Like that's kind of my goal for all my songs. This is not generic. You know, this is not something anyone could have done. If I'm not writing songs that no one else in the world could have possibly written, then like, what's the point? I, I totally get that. And I think where it, it starts to bug me is when people are sort of dinging somebody for having uh, an interesting lyric. Yeah. Kind of poking fun at someone for, for having a word you don't often hear or a detail you don't often hear. Yeah. It's like, isn't that what you want? Don't you? We should all want that. We should all want stuff that that is like nothing we've heard before. But like that makes it goofy to some people, you know, somehow if mm -hmm. it sounds conversational or if it sounds like people talk, 
then it is goofy to them. And I think there is something about music. And again, a lot of the stuff we've talked about, um, a lot of the songwriters we've talked about anyway, they do throw in those details. Mm -hmm. And you know who does it a lot, especially in his like breakup songs, is uh, John Flansberg, our buddy from They Might Be Giants. He, he <laughs> yeah. always throws in like that, that Young Fresh Fellows tape. Imaginary Friend. I, I love Imaginary Friend so much because he talks about Massachusetts iconography stuff. And you, you hear the song and you just go like, he's it feels more special it feels like he's like giving it feels like he's revealing a piece of his his life to you and he doesn't do that too often but when he does it it's like it's like pretty amazing so i, I that's sort of how i see it too with with this song and and also this song is kind of a good example of to me it's not funny because it's really true like i i think it really did kind of turn me into who i am today so to me the song is like as serious as you can get but the the other thing is that if people aren't laughing when I play the song, I get kind of sad. Like, oh, they don't think this is fun or funny. Like, that's too bad. You know what I mean? It's it's so compl complicated. Like, I don't know how I want people to react to this song. It's actually confusing for me. I played Boy My Age at shows and people seemed to like it, but what I what happened was that demo that I sent you, um, I put that on a, I made a little EP that I like just burned myself on my computer and handed out to like all my classmates in college. So it was a CD that was called A Ceiling Fan, which, and like the cover of it was like a house with a ceiling fan in the window and me with my, the little cartoon of me with a guitar. It's kind of like very childlike looking. And that's track one. And I gave it out to a bunch of friends in school. And then like a few months later, my, my one friend, Sam, uh, from college, he just said, oh, at the dorm, we're doing this thing with your song where we keep starting it over. We keep playing the first line and yelling, hey, and then starting it over. And I was kind of like puzzled. Like I was like, whoa, are they making fun of me? Like I wasn't sure. In fact, I'm still not sure to this day if it was like a mocking thing. But I was just like, oh, okay, um, that's nice to hear. They're playing, they're, they're playing the first line only over and over again. That's a little weird. And then I had a show where Sam brought a bunch of people from the dorm. So like I played it. And so I basically sing the first line and then everyone yells, hey. And then I, you know, the, the concept is that then I sing the first line again and then it just goes on for a while. And then I go into the song and you know, I never understood what it meant, <laughs> but it seems just kind of like a drunken dorm game. You know what I mean? So then I got booked to play this party, this house party by Sam and by all those people. And this was right after my first girlfriend broke up with me, the first girlfriend I ever had. And it was like really devastating. Like I was in a, I thought of quitting school. Like that's how hard I took it. I basically showed up, I did the songs. I covered a Young Fresh Fellow song called Sitting on a Pitchfork because that song single-handedly got me over the breakup. Like I, I'm not the biggest Young Fresh Fellows fan in the world, but they'll always have like this special place for me. I listened to this album by Young Fresh Fellows called Electric Bird Digest. 
And the second track is sitting on a pitchfork, and it's just a song being like, I just got dumped. I'm sitting on a pitchfork, and I love it. It's just being, it's just kind of twisting it, saying, nothing has ever felt so good as sitting on the pitchfork. And it's, you know, I don't know if it's ironic or whatever, whatever, but it, it did this weird switch in my head where I was like, why can't it just feel good that I got dumped? Like, why does it have to feel bad? Instead, it should feel great. Like the song says, the sun is shining now because I'm sitting on a pitchfork. Everything is so great because I'm sitting on a pitchfork, you know? So it's just taking this like painful moment and just sort of jokingly saying how awesome it is. And that weirdly, that like did the trick. So I covered that song at this show, and then at this show, everyone starts yelling for Boy My Age, and it's it was honestly a shocking thing, because it was a room full of people who knew the song. I mean, most people, most of the people standing in front of me, it was maybe like 20 people, you know? I mean, it was a small house party. They started just yelling for me to do Boy My Age, and as you hear, I do it, and they all do the the weird little dorm game, and it just, but then not just that, but then they're just singing along to like almost every lyric. You know, and that kind of made me feel like, oh, this isn't just like a joke to them. They actually listen to the song and seem to really like the song. I said, okay, I'm, I'm ending the show now. Thanks so much, everyone. And like, they're just like, Playboy My Age again. Do it again, do it again. And like, my friend Timmy goes like, do it on guitar. You didn't do it on guitar before, you did it on accordion, you know? And I was like, okay, fine. So I do it again and it's even like more crazy, you know? It's more raucous and insane. And that that was like, just like one of the like most special nights ever for me. Nine times out of 10. And it's funny because like after I got off stage, like that high kind of went away and I felt kind of sad because no one was paying attention to me anymore. This is why I can't really do open mics because I hate the idea that now someone else is on stage and everyone forgot about me. That's how like, that's how like sensitive I am. But um, no, I've, I've had those nights where it was like a great feeling and you leave the stage and there's people standing there saying, great show. And you talk to some people that maybe you've never talked to before, or maybe even people you know of that are finally walking up to you and they realize what you do and you go, oh, cool. This person is, you know, like other bands on the bill mm -hmm. or something. It can be a great thing. But then there are those weird times where you leave the stage and if nobody that you know came out to see you mm -hmm. and nobody else was there uh, that you brought or anything, it can be this weird, like, okay, I guess I can go get my guitar and walk to the car or, you know, walk home or, <laughs> yeah. I, like, I can just leave now. And it's it's weird for it to be that kind of a shift. It's a crazy shift. It's a crazy, like, it's a mood swing. Yeah. stupid face. Hey! 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 
And I try to create some sense in my head of, of that it's still kind of glamorous mm -hmm. to go and sing a song for people. And so I always take it a little seriously. And it is sometimes weird when you think, and especially if you also think, well, I didn't quite, I didn't quite grab them. Uh, and, and, and I'm walking away, but when, even when it's a nice performance and it went well and it's just weird and you're like, you know, maybe one person goes good set and you're like, okay, that's pretty cool. But it, it is a weird kind of coming down from the clouds kind of feeling. Yeah. So I almost always want to just sort of disappear, um, <laughs> uh, when that's over. And I also hate waiting around to go up on stage all day. I'm just a basket case if I have to play any kind of, uh. Musical well, performance. That's a whole other topic I could talk about. Yeah, I can't. I I can't function at all, and I can't interact <laughs> with anyone. I snap at people. I'm kind of awful. Like I can't. I can't really talk to people. Um, it's because I'm so ner I'm so scared about going on stage. And if anyone says like, "Oh, do you want? Um, do you want to get food?" I'd be like, "I can't eat now. What's wrong with you?" You know, like I. It's really hard. It was really difficult for me. I mean, it took a while. Having a band kind of helped because it's like, "Oh, we're all in this together." And but even then, like I, I think my band realized like before a show, just don't uh, <laughs> don't try to push him too hard to into anything. A lot of audiences really will go there with you to some strange little place if they feel like you've done your your part to be entertaining. Yeah, I mean, so so back, so that was like October 2000, hmm, what was that, 2002? Yeah, October 2002. So I wasn't that solid a live performer yet you know i was still learning how to like play rhythm on the guitar smoothly which i still <laughs> struggle with a little but I, so part of my thought back then was are these people making fun of me because you know it's like when i was up there i felt like kind of king of the party but then when the next band went on and they were this cool punk indie rock kind of they kind of had like an attitude you know like everyone was a little drunk and blah 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 I was like, oh, was I just ridiculous? Like, was I just like this weird little boy playing like little songs and everyone was like laughing at me? So I, I always have that complex of like, are people laughing? <laughs> are people laughing at the, cause the lyrics are witty? Are they laughing because I'm ridiculous to them? But I got better at performing to the extent that I felt pretty confident of like, uh, like, okay, I can have these people like in the palm of my hand if I want, because I have these, I have a handful of songs that I know really work well, you know, like a couple that I'm very confident in. Uh, so yeah, that, that's just something I struggle with. And the other thing I wanted to talk about is just, you know, when I put out my, my album last year in like November, you know, track one is a boy my age, because that was very intentional. You know, like I, I sort of, I couldn't see it any other way because I was like, it was track one on the first EP that I ever made, you know? It was like the big song that everyone seemed to like. It was the first time I felt like confident that people liked a song of mine. So I'm like, what I want to do is start track one on my album with just me and a guitar to kind of match, you know, the early live kind of thing and then just have this band come in and the song rocks out and it's like oh my god look what he's able to pull together you know nine times out of ten i hate 
my best friend He acts like he's been on Mars Four times out of five To be honest, like me and my band, when we were recording the album, we were kind of sick of that song. Like we had moved on to many other songs that we thought were just more interesting or, or not as quirky, you know, a little more like rock, you know. But like, I was still adamant, like this is track one, you know. It's it's just it's just a little bit of a look back before I look forward, you know, like. We're just gonna like do this little nostalgia thing and play this as track one, and then then we'll get into like the crazy rock songs that are a little bit you know written a little bit later. But I just really thought it was important to like get this out of the way. <laughs> the song like earned its place <laughs> as being like track one, so I, I wanted to give it that. There's a kind of effortlessness to the way that song comes off in terms of the way the band plays it. That to me sounds. I mean, I can hear all the little the little production tricks you're doing, but I can tell that sort of living with a song where everybody kind of knows what to do and knows how to play around within that space. That song's got an energy to it that I can totally see. It's a great track one. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I also think that th that is funny that a song has been with you for that long and you still sort of felt like, well, it deserves to have this official version. It deserves to have this finished, polished version. And then I, and then I never have to think about it ever again for the rest of my life. <laughs> with a boy my age, junior high school, Russell Sage will be a better place. That was part one. Part two is coming soon, but in the meantime, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Gianni W. And remember to subscribe to FYIZ wherever you get podcasts in order to catch future episodes of this show and others like it. For now, though, I need to go study for my social studies test. No one's ever asked me questions before. Um, You're finally interesting enough to be asked questions. How does it feel? <laughs> yeah.